Dead Triathlon Show 250. What's up, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host, Michael, and on today's episode, I interview Tone van Erp from the Netherlands. Tone completed his PhD research while working as the sports scientist at Team Sunweb, where he spent many years before he recently uh, started to focus completely on his academic career at the University of Stellenbosch in South Africa. In this episode, we'll discuss much of the research Tone did while at Team Sunweb. He has a massive data set of uh, real-world uh, professional uh, cyclists from over many and many years. So it's uh, a really almost unique data set in, uh, in the science of, of training. And we'll also just discuss the training strategies from purely anecdotal point of view from what he saw during his t- time with the team. But before we get into the interview, big thanks to our sponsors. First, we have Precision Hydration, and uh, today I want to highlight a great blog post on Precision Hydration's extremely educational blog that you should check out every now and then, or subscribe to the newsletter and just get informed uh, about new interesting content. But this one was about performing in extreme heats, which, uh, at least at the time of this recording in early August, is something that many parts in Europe have been experiencing, so it may perhaps be over for you by the time that you hear this actual episode. Either way, I found it very educational, for example, learning about the differences between heat stroke and heat exhaustion. And uh, the post also talked about a number of the things that you can that you can and should take into account when it comes to performing in the heat. Uh, so heat adaptation is an obvious one, but hydration, cooling strategies, even things like body composition and pacing and how those affect your performance in the heat. And of course, when it comes to the hydration part of that equation, adequate sodium and electrolyte replacement is key, and that's where precision hydration comes in. You can take a free online sweat test and get a ballpark estimate for how much sodium you lose in your sweat, and then buy electrolytes that match that uh, sweat sodium concentration level. And you can get 15% off that order with the promo code DATTRAFLONSHOW15 on precisionhydration.com. And thank you to Roca. Roka are the world-leading manufacturers of wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles, high-performance eyewear, and prescription glasses and sunglasses. They use a combination of big innovations like arm suck technology in their wetsuits, uh, Geeko anti-slip technology in their glasses and eyewear, and small details like greater lens angle on their swim goggles so you can sl- sight with a slightly lower lift of your head when you're swimming in the open water. And uh, that combination of big innovations and small details is what makes Roka's products as good as they can possibly be, raising the bar in any product category that they enter. You can check out all their products on Roka.com and you can get a 20% discount with the promo code that you can find on Roka.com forward slash TTS. Now, without any further ado, let's get into the interview with Teun van Erp. Welcome to that triathlon show, Ten. How are you doing today? I'm really, uh, really well. Thank, thanks for inviting me. It's uh, a pleasure to have you. Uh, I really like the the research that you've done. I've found found that that's something that I had been looking for for a while regarding training load and which different measures of training load 
uh, work and and why and how and so on. So uh, yeah, really appreciate you taking the time. Uh, before we dive into that topic, can you first introduce yourself to the audience and tell us about your current roles or work and your background as well in sport and science? Yeah, so um, I'm Dane, um, 35 years old. I worked in yeah, Team Sunweb and predecessors uh, for like uh, nine years. So yeah, we started. I started in a team when they were still really small, like Skillshimano. And uh, yeah, in those nine years, we... We won pretty a lot of big races, including the Giro with Tom Dumoulin. So it was really nice. But uh, and during those nine years, um, yeah, I used the data we, which I collected in, in the team to do my PhD. And after finishing the PhD, I, I yeah, I found that I really like doing research. So I kind of switched jobs, and now I'm a postdoc at Stellenbosch University, and I'm still working mostly with the, the data collected from from Team Sunweb. So uh, more more research will come out soon. Oh, that's really, really fascinating and really great to hear that more data uh, will come from that because that's obviously real data co- collected from real uh, world-class riders in the field. Uh, just uh, to make sure that uh, the audience understands what you were doing at Team Sunweb, you were their sports scientist or sports physiologist, is that correct? Yeah, yeah, the sports scientist. So... The question, like when I started in 2011, the power meters was kind of a new thing and the team wanted to have, uh, yeah, more knowledge about that. So my main job in the beginning was collect all the data and I analyzed everything myself in Modlab. So we could do like, we, we were not limited to training peaks, for example. We could do everything with the data ourselves. And then during the years, I work more on the time trial and the team time trial and, and analyzing those kind of things. And the last years, I especially worked together with universities doing doing new stuff and new projects. All right, great. So let's uh, dive into the some of the research that you've done. And uh, the first topic I want to discuss is the uh, when you tried to correlate different measures of uh, training load or internal training load, like TSS, session RPE, uh, TRIMP, and so on with the external training load measured as kilojoules. That's uh, one big part of your of your uh, PhD thesis. So can you describe the work you did there and go into some details about uh, what you found and the implications of it? Yeah, so I have uh, two researchers about, about two research papers about this. And I think ah, there's multiple, multiple things I found. One is that all of the um, load measures, so if it's ba- it doesn't matter if it's base or heart rate or power output or RPE, they, they all have a really good correlation with each other. And I think the main thing uh, why this is happening is because the training rides and the, and the, the races are so long, uh, like three, four, five hours. So the duration, which is in all of the four measurements, is really important. And that makes the correlation like really, really good. But this correlation will get slightly weaker in races. Um, and that is probably to do that, for example, you cannot control you cannot control as much as you can control in the training. So uh, the internal measurements like RPE and heart rate will yeah will variate more compared with with in a race compared with the training. 
Yeah, and uh, for the listeners again, uh, heart rate is used in the TRIMP measurement yeah. that that is used. TSS, as most listeners will be aware, is based on it's a power based uh, measure of load, and then uh, RPE. Uh, in this context, we're talking about session RPE on the one to ten scale, as proposed by Carl Foster, I think, originally, or was it? No, it was the Borg that uh, that Carl created Borg. that scale as well? Yeah, the RPE score okay. was uh, Borg, and then session RPE was Carl Foster. Got it. Okay, perfect. Yeah. So, uh, so th- those three measures uh, correlate really well, generally, in training, in racing, uh, slightly less well. Uh, you say that, I mean, I think that's something that when I read your papers, I found very interesting that the duration really drives that correlation because of the the long rides and the the long hours that these riders put in into their training what do you think uh, this might look like if you're looking at uh, instead of 21 world-class riders you're looking at 21 amateur cyclists or even amateur triathletes that also have the swim and the swim and the run so they don't put in that many hours in in the bike do you think that the correlation would be much less clear Uh, do you have any thoughts around that yeah, I I think it will be less less big the correlation, uh, less good the correlation because the rides are shorter. So the intensity measure. So with session RPE, it's the RPE, and and with uh, Lucius Trimp, it's the heart. Yeah, the heart kind of the heart rate will play a bigger role. So I think if you're gonna relate it, correlate it with kilojoules, you will get slightly lower correlations. That's that's what I expect. Although I didn't do it, so. Yeah, obviously. Yeah. Um, so, can you go into each of the uh, the measures or the the load measures, TSS, RPE, and TRIMP? And if you want to give uh, a couple of the main sort of pros and cons of each, the way that you see it. Yeah. So, the um, let's start with TSS because that's that there I wrote a whole paper about, and the TSS is a little bit. Um, how how the formula is built it's that you collect 100 points when you ride one hour on ftp on on the power you can hold for for one hour and the measure is kind of a little bit strange if you if you look to all the other measures in load because all the other measures are either linear or have a um, what's it called expansion expansional um, relationship with intensity yeah I, the English word is always a little bit tough for me, but but TSS has a quadratic relation, um, so that makes it a little bit strange. And I, for example, um, looked in this in one of my papers, and it shows um, that for the same ride, or for the same amount of kilojoule, uh, let's say thirty seven hundred. So so if you if you ride with uh, thirty seven hundred kilojoules, but you do it with a low or a high intensity, um, with a high intensity, you collect 50% more TSS points. So that's pretty, yeah, kind of strange because externally you burn the same amount of kilojoules. And you can calculate it pretty easily. Um, so for example, our example is if you ride on an intensity factor of 0.35, for four hours you will collect 48 points. And if you write on an intensity factor of 0.93, for one and a half hours, you collect 130 points. So that's two and a half times more points. So it would mean to collect the same amount of points 
at a low intensity, 0.35, you have to write around 10 hours instead of the one and a half hours. So the difference is really big between a low intensity ride and a high intensity ride. I, I hope uh, it was a little and, bit... And would, and, would, and, would, and would the kilojoules be the same between those two rides? Yeah, the kilojoules are then the same between mm. those rides. So it's a mm. ride of one and a half or 10 hours to collect the same points. With <laughs> and so the, uh, Sorry, if you do the 10 hours, then the kilojoules are like almost also two and a half times higher. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, and uh, what about session RB and uh, Lucia Strimp, the heart rate based methods? What, what are your thoughts around them as load measures? The, the heart rate based measures have, um, uh, it can be an advantage or a disadvantage, but the heart rate and especially in, in road cycling with, uh, with races of 10 days or 21 days, the Grand Tours, the heart rate will go. The heart, heart rate will be suppressed with fatigue. Um, and thus, at the end of a training camp or in the end of a Grand Tour, it can look like that, that you, you collect less amount of load compared to what you actually did. So it can be a risk for, like, um, for training, for example, that, the, that at the end of a training camp, it looks like you didn't do that much. But it's because the heart rate is suppressed um, and not because you didn't do the training correctly, for example. Yeah. And, and session RPE, what do you think about that? And the session RPE, the, the good thing about it, that it's really easy to collect um, because, yeah, it's just one number and, um, yeah, and the time. Um so that's a that's a really big advantage because I did I did another study with the girls team and they are really good in collecting everything and I missed like ten to fifty percent of the power output data but session RP I I had everything um, so I really like it because of that um, the 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 nah, kind of the disadvantage is that for example if you do a long endurance ride the the First, um, the, the duration will be kind of double because you already use the duration in the formula, but the RPE will make it also harder. The, the duration will make it also harder for the rider. So one hour at the same intensity, a rider will give a lower RPE score than five hours on that intensity. So it's kind of double in the formula. Um, so because of, yeah, yeah so because Every load measure has an advantage and a disadvantage. We uh, really, or I really think you should combine them and not focus on one measure. Mm. That makes a lot of sense. With session RPE, I, I do get quite a few questions from listeners asking, how do I know how hard my ride was and how to rate it? And uh, can you just give a brief description of, of how you would, things like, how soon after the workout should you uh, should you do the rating, the collection of data, and and how should you think about where to rate that particular workout on the session RPE scale? I, I always tell the riders so they have to do it after like uh, thirty minutes. So take a shower and then fill it in, and then don't think about it. Just look at the list and okay. And the first number which comes up in, into your mind is the yeah is the RPE score. Um, you should not overthink it, mm. in my opinion. And not like, 
because oh, okay. it, it should give um, an idea about how hard the ride was for the day. And it, it should not be like, oh, I did six times five minutes interval training, thus it should be uh, 15. Th then you're thinking too much about it. Mm. Yep. All right. Um, so, wait, I'm going to... I lost my list of questions here. Um, <laughs> the, the one thing that uh, I find interesting here is that uh, you're correlating these uh, measures of uh, internal training load with the kilojoules as it, it always makes it seem as though you're using kilojoules as sort of like a gold standard, which I can understand. But it's actually, it's also a training uh, me load measure that's not really used that much, at least for amateurs. I don't think a lot of amateur riders pay even two seconds of attention to it. So uh, what are your thoughts around uh, kilojoules? Is that an important variable to track uh, for amateur cyclists as well as uh, pro cyclists? How do you view uh, the role of measuring and tracking that? I, I, I like the, the, uh, the kilojoules because it's really straightforward. There's nothing like going on like TSS or um, so that, that's why I like it. Plus you can use it to, yeah, you can use it how hard the training was, but also you can use it to see how much energy you burned and, and base your nutrition strategy afterwards on it. So that's what, that's why I like it because it's just, it's straightforward and, and you don't have the, for example, the, yeah, let's, let's call it the disadvantage of the TSS with the intensity. So you will not, with TSS, you can have the risk that you underestimate the load of a, of a, of a endurance ride, a low intensity endurance ride, which kilojoules always gives you kind of a straightforward number. Yes. Yeah. Uh, absolutely agree. And uh, where does your research sit relative to other research on this topic? What previous research or uh, research that has been done since have looked at these different measures of training load and how does it compare to what you found? Yeah, so the, 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 there is limited work done on load measures in, in cycling and especially professional cycling. And that makes a pretty, um, yeah, a, lo a, a load measure is valuable or is um, reliable when uh, it's related with the, with the response. So the dose is the load and the response is the outcome of the training. So if you, th that's how you should validate a load measure. And to my knowledge, there's only one paper who did that. And that's from one of my co-authors where I work, work together and that's from Dio Sanders. And he kind of found that TSS is a really, yeah, good measure because it has the highest dose response relationship. And he kind of finds his study that all the measures which have an individual um, component in it are, are the most most valuable or most reliable. And what, what do you mean by an individual uh, component to it? So TSS has the, F, has the FTP in it, which is individual for every rider. It's different. And for example, you have iTrim. Yep which is individualized trim, which is based on, I, if I remember correct, it's based on, a, you do first, you do a laboratory um, measurement and based on that measurement, you, you determine the eye trim. Where, for example, Lucia's trim and Edward's trim, it's just, it's for every, the, the, there's no individual component in it. So it's for everybody the same. Mm. 
Yeah, okay, I see. So, okay, so so one study from your colleague, uh, Dejo Sanders, uh, that found a dose-response relationship with between TSS and, uh, yeah, with, with a, a response, a dose-response relationship with when TSS was used as the load yeah. measure. Uh, and uh, I'll I'll uh, dig dig up that study and link to it in the show notes so that listeners yeah. can go and uh, have a look at that. And, but, um, but so and, can I can I share? Sorry, go on. Yeah, so probably yep. the TSS has this good dose response relationship because you collect more points with high intensity, and your response is probably also higher with a lot of high intensity training. Um, and this study right. was done in the in the preseason. Um, so it, it, it could be, yeah, how, how do you say it? And also the response value was like short, high intensity. He did like eight minutes, eight minutes max test. So it could be that an auto load measure will work better when you also take into account uh, more duration, for example, or lo- more low intensity training. So there's a lot of, it's a really mm. interesting topic where I think more work, we should do more work in this topic. Yeah, yeah. In in the meantime, if you can give some practical tips, you said your uh, you think you should collect all of these things, and that makes a lot of sense. Uh, can you give a little bit of an overview of how you, for example, at Sunweb, used this information? How you used all of them in parallel, and maybe which ones you considered the most important, and and so on. And what did you use the training load measures for? Was it just for tracking, or did you? use them a lot to inform the training prescription and and so on? Mm, that's a lot of questions. Um, so we... Yes, <laughs> sorry. Yeah, we, we used uh, TSS, kilojoules, and session RPE, uh, not, not the heart rate measures, um, which yeah. I think is a pity, but some riders didn't like um, wearing the heart rate belt in races. And because the session RPE is so... Um, um, yeah. You can always collect it, like with the power meter. Sometimes they go mountain biking and they don't have a power meter. And then the session RPE we use to fill in the load. Um, um, we cal- we calculated the TSS and the kilojoules based on the session RPE when we missed those measures. So we always, every day, we had all three measurements. And, um, mm. yeah, and we used... Um, how how did we use it? Um, so yeah, we you can use it the load measures to see how heavy the week was or the month was and compare it with the previous years. Normally, you want with a young rider you want to do less in a in a month compared with a rider of twenty years old is doing mostly less in a month compared to a rider of thirty or thirty five. So you can use it that way. And what we also did is uh, calculate the acute with chronic load uh, relationship. Um, and this way you can control that one week a training, uh, a training camp is not too heavy compared to what a rider did previously. Yeah. Yep. Uh, that makes a lot of sense. And, and did you, uh, did you find a good correlation in racing between uh, the training load for how, how much chronic training load you had built up with race performances and or was that something that you didn't look at uh, we we didn't look at it because uh, i think one of the reasons is that it's really difficult to assess the performance in a race 
And it sounds a little bit strange because everybody thinks like, oh, but you have the power meter and you see uh, what a rider is doing in the on the last mountain. And um, yeah, then you know how good he was. But I did, for example, I did a study with, uh, with Tom Dumoulin um, where I compare his performance on the last mountain in the four grand tours he, he rode for the GC. And then, for example, you see that the power output on the on the key mountains really depends on what happened in the race before, if it's the first week in the Grand Tour, the third week, how warm it is, on which altitude it is. So you have a lot of factors influencing the power output. So it's really difficult to get a really accurate um, yeah, measure of the performance in a race. Yeah, that's a, so that's a good point. If you want to do this, yeah. So, yeah, really a lot of people uh, underestimate it because, yeah, like I said, they think it's with the power meter, it's really easy, but it's it's still pretty difficult. Mm, yeah. So moving on to, to another topic, where, which is another part of your uh, research, is the different differences in training characteristics between professional male and female cyclists. Can you discuss what you, what you found and uh, then elaborate a bit on why you think you found the differences that you found. Yeah. So I did two studies. One first one, I looked at the races um, and how intense the races were. And then because the races were so different, I looked at the training. What we found in the races is that the female, female cyclist, of course, the, the load it's lower because the duration is shorter, but the intensity is way higher in, in, in female races. Uh, this is probably caused ah, as multiple reasons. One probably is that in female cyclists, uh, cycling only um, yeah, a couple of riders are paid like professionals, so they can train professional, and other riders are still are studying or working. So the level in the peloton, the difference between the best rider and the and the weakest is really big. So probably the top 20 have maybe the same intensity profile in a race as, a, as the, the male races or the male yeah, races. Uh, but the other ones, the other 100 girls are like, yeah, have a way higher intensity. So I think one of the reasons is that, that yeah, that you have 20 really good riders and, and the rest is, is weaker while, while in the male peloton, the... Yeah, the level is more, how do you say, it's stable. And the other reason is that the races are shorter um, in women's cycling. So they cannot give, like in male cycling, the, um, the breakaway will get five minutes and then in the last hour they will, will close it down. But in, in female cycling, this almost never happens. The, the breakaway will get maybe one or two minutes and then they will close, yeah, they will close it down way yeah, not earlier, but yeah, they, they they have a shorter time to close down the gap. So the gap will never be that big. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and in terms of training, did you look at that as well? Differences between males and females? Yeah, so yeah, we saw the same kind of um, uh, intensity, the, the differences, we saw the same kind of in differences in training, but slightly uh, smaller. So the girls train more intense, um, but the differences are not so big as in, in the races. Mm. And this 
probably has to do with the. I think it has to do with the with the time the girls have, but also with so they a girls' training will be similar to a men's training with, for example, six times five minutes uh, intervals. But then the girls will do it in three hours, and the males will do it in five hours. So if you then look at the intensity of that training, then it will be higher in the in the in the female uh, cyclists. Yeah, so a little bit, uh, just a, a higher percentage of intensity overall because the total volume is a bit uh, is a bit lower than for the males, but but they do a similar amount of of intensity. Yeah, they do the same same. Yeah, they do the same intervals, but in a shorter duration. Yeah. Mm. Okay, and perhaps even things like terrain can play a part there. So where um, male cyclists can go up and go and ride in the mountains and and make sure that they stay at a at an endurance uh, level, endurance power, uh, even on the climbs. For a female, maybe they are forced to go at a relatively higher intensity at uh, when they're climbing. So that could be a, a factor as well, perhaps. Yeah, I think that's for sure a factor. And this was also the reason, for example, why we stopped doing a training camp in December with the, with the girls' team in in the mountains. In uh, we we always went to Kalpa, which is a pretty there's a lot of hills, and we saw that they like in December we want to do mostly endurance, and we saw that in the training camps they were they were doing a lot of intensity um, because of the hills, but also because. If you ride in a team of 10 girls, like I said before, two or three are, have a really high level and the, the rest is still, yeah, it's it's a lower level. But those other six girls will try to follow the three really strong girls. So they ride in two high intensity zones during the training camps. Yeah. And uh, was there anything in, in this uh, research that you did that, is applicable to to amateur athletes are there any i mean it sounds like perhaps not because what you did was just characterize the training uh, between the males and the females and uh, and you saw what the results of that were it's not to say that uh, one way is more effective than another necessarily or that uh, the training of the females would be more effective if they were doing more volume and therefore a lower intensity or vice versa but if there is anything that you think that the uh, the listeners who are amateur endurance athletes could take away. Uh, let us know uh, if if there is anything. Yeah, yeah, I I, th- I think, but it's in general. But you also see it in my research um, that a lot of still a lot of time is spent in. I, I use the five zone uh, intensity distribution, but the, I think still too much time is spent in the in the middle zone, like zone two and three, and right riders tend to like the really low long intensity low intensity rides they they are done too with too much intensity so they train too much in the gray zone so to my opinion the the training and i saw it also with the pros but i think with the amateurs try to focus on the um, yeah the training goal so if the training goal is is a long endurance ride make sure it's long with low intensity and when the training goal is high intensity then also do it like with a really high intensity and not so much in between and i think the in-between trainings you get a lot when when people ride in groups like they all want to want to ride in the front and push it a little bit 
So they will never do. So the ride will never be really low intensity endurance, but also will never be with a really high intensity. Yep. So that's a little bit my advice. Yep. Yeah, that makes makes sense. Uh, one thing, one follow up on that. You say that uh, people do a little bit more or too much um, uh, mid zone or moderate intensity, but you lumped zone two in there, which is kind of interesting. So, uh, what intensity would you say that if somebody goes out and do a long endurance ride, and let's say we're talking about an amateur cyclist here, what, what sort of intensity percentage of FTP, if you want to talk in those terms, would you recommend doing that at? Yeah, so yeah, that's uh, the zone one I use was from zero till fifty five percent. And you want you want them to be in zone um, one so for for that long long ride. Yeah, maybe not for the whole ride, but like because that's maybe it got boring. <laughs> hmm. <laughs> I know, um, but like don't do the whole ride in zone two. Uh, but do it easy. Okay, okay. And do you th- and do you think that this still applies for somebody who is? Uh, I mean, you're working with athletes that have uh, FTPs that are on the male side, probably 400 watts or uh, around that benchmark. But but if we have amateur athletes that are at 250 watts, do you think it still applies? You should still stick to sort of make sure that you get a good amount of zone one in there and not do the whole ride in zone two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I I really think that applies, um, and I can look it up. For example, if you look at my PhD, the 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 the, the pro, this is the pros. They do fifty five percent in the lower in the in zone one in a training average uh, in an average training. Mm. Yeah. So that's 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 pretty a lot. Fifty five percent. Just yeah, just to give you any, but they still do like thirty um, percent in zone two, and I think that should be like fifteen percent. Mm. Okay. Okay. That thirty percent, it's high. And also, if you look to an average re- average training, um, I have to find the right graph in the in mills. Um, I do remember from your study that the, that the, the average intensity factor of a ride was point uh, fifty nine. So fifty nine percent of FTP, I think, was the. Uh, was the average intensity factor? Yeah. So that's an interesting stat. Yeah. And a, a one on a ninety watts average. Mm. So that's yeah. I could do those rides yeah. without proper training. Yeah. Like the, the average ride. I mean. Yeah. But, <laughs> yeah. but the average ride was also three hours long, <laughs> and uh, and of course there are plenty of rides that are a lot longer than that. So if the average is three hours, so yeah, yeah, yeah. And I do that every day. That's always a little bit the problem with, ah, sorry. That's always a little bit the problem with, uh, with studies that you, yeah, take a lot, that you take group averages. So yeah, the average ride is three hours, but they do six, seven hours and they do after a race do one hour, really, really recovery. Mm. So yeah, that makes it that, uh, average ride is only three hours. Yeah. Next, I want to uh, just to go into a few different topics from your experience in professional cycling, but also in in research, and just get your sort of uh, lowdown on on these topics. I think we already talked here about training intensity distribution, which is actually the first thing I had on my list. But we can skip to the next one, which would be periodization. What, what do you think about that, and how how have you seen it done in professional cycling? Yeah, I think a periodization is 
pretty important, um, especially to be good on the right moment um, in a race. So what we always tried to do in November and December was like really try to work on the endurance uh, capacity of riders because in those periods you have the kind of the time also to do the um, yeah the, the the long endurance rides but also if you do too much intensity already there then you will be really in good shape maybe in january and february but the most important races are in march and april so it's important to to hold back with intensity early in the season in november and december of course it depends where where you want to perform um and you normally saw in our team that maybe the first um classics in the end of february on om- omloop newsblad we were never super good but in parijs nice and the really important classics we we were kind of pre- performing because there our goals were um so yeah the prioritization is pretty important to to um yeah to make a good plan and make sure that you are in shape when you want to be in shape and i, I think if you riders that that not working with trainers or not with this kind of planning they they are maybe too early in shape in february and then when the really important races are in end of march april that peak is already slightly gone um so yeah it's really important yeah that's a good overview and next what type of when you do sort of quality training you do some sort of efforts uh what was the relative focus on uh for example high intensity or very high intensity training uh let's call it zone five and above zone five versus sort of moderate training tempo threshold in zone three zone four how did you use those different types of a quote-unquote quality training in in the in the training plans uh yeah so that has kind of to do with the prioritization where where, where we started with november december with um, more the endurance components you try to build up towards the season with doing more intensity um so yeah the uh, how did you call it the moderate intensity in um in january um and then really the high intensity like the taper kind of trainings like 4020s those kind of things you do um maybe two weeks before the important races mm. so kind of uh, a very sort of traditional linear periodization where you build up towards the higher and higher intensities as you get closer to the race that's mostly how how we did it but of course it it all depends on on the individual rider and to be honest there's not that much research about about this yeah so we have the philosophy and we think this is the best way but it can be that for one rider it's the best way but for another rider um yeah maybe you have to adjust it or 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 make it yeah yeah, make it different when you are in i don't know january february how many workouts would a rider do that is not just an endurance ride or a recovery ride? So uh, how many rides that is something like tempo, threshold uh, or high intensity intervals would, would be done? And can you give an example of what that might be? Maybe it's just two tempo rides and that's it. But just give a, a little bit of a snapshot. Ooh, um, I think in February... And also end of January, let's say you're you're going for March as a as your peak form. Um, in a training camp, we did one 
long endurance ride, but all the other trainings were kind of with some intensity or, uh, yeah, so with, with intervals training, like, all, all, yeah, five out of six trainings were with intensity in it. Mm. Either sprinters do sprint training and practice the lead out train or the whole team does uh, team time trial training. Like almost every training has in, uh, uh, intensity component in it. Mm. Yeah, that's very interesting. And uh, it flies in the face of some research that uh, has been popular with, uh, I'm thinking of the polarized training where uh, initially the research talked about how eight out of 10 sessions uh, in the athletes selected in those studies or the, the types of studies included there were low intensity sessions. Uh, so it really talked about the number of sessions done at low intensity versus high or moderate intensity rather than the total time. But in cycling, and you're not the first person I talked to that, uh, that uh, confirmed this to be the case, it really seems that uh, your very often including some intensity component in the workouts but still of course there's a lot if you just measure the duration and the total time there's a really a lot of low intensity training in there but but uh, that's interesting to hear yeah yeah so i think you can you you get really a periodized training also with this approach but you don't look at the number of trainings with a high intensity but more at the time spent um because with a high intensity training in professional cyclists cycling, they still do 80% in a low intensity zone um, of, of that training because the training is always so long. Yeah. Um, but this is also why I think it's important to do a high intensity training. You do the 80% of the training in really low intensity. So you can do the high intensity on a really high intensity. Mm. So that's also what I mean that uh, with the gray take out a great component of doing this kind of interval training, um, like do everything in zone two and then do intervals in zone four. Um, my idea would be to do everything low intensity and then the high intensity, like with really maximum or like at least that it is real with a real high intensity. Mm. So, so it sounds like you think that if we're looking at the, the, the spectrum of zone three, zone four, zone five, zone six, you think that really the, the more important ones, the most important ones would be the zone five, zone six type of workouts, even though you said that, yeah, you do the, the tempo and the threshold work. But do you think that the, the higher intensity above threshold is the most important one still? Uh, I, I, I don't think you can say that one zone is more important than the other zone. Because if you don't do any endurance training or, or threshold training, like a race is really complex and you need everything. Um, so I would not say zone five is more important than work in zone three. Um, I'm just saying that that too much time is spent in like zone two while it should be low uh, in zone one. Okay, got it. Does that make sense? Yes, yes, perfect. Thank you. Uh, the next topic I want to discuss is cadence. So how do you or did you implement uh, specific low cadence or high cadence training? Well, I was I was not really the trainer. So uh, I know that the trainers did a lot of, yeah, they played with it a lot. Um, because if you do the low cadence, you have a more kind of strength component into your training. Um, but you have to be a little bit careful because it's more 
it puts more pressure on you, for example, on the knees. Um, and the high cadence training, we, we did a lot um, e either because it brings up your heart rate faster than a low cadence, but also because riding in the peloton is a lot of times with, with high cadence. Um, so we played with, with those, those trainings. Yeah. yeah. And uh, nutrition, how uh, can you talk about what that looked like both in training, but also just in the day-to-day, -day, the breakfast, lunch, and dinner kind of things? Just give an overview. Yeah, I think nutrition is one of, a really important part of, um, yeah, of professional cycling. Um, what I think that people maybe... They, the, with nutrition, the problem is that a lot of research is about that last two, three percent. But the most important is just the ninety-five percent of your daily nutrition, which is really important. Um, and in training, nutrition is really important because it changes the training effect. If you do, for example, training with low carbs, the effect is different than the training with high carbs in your body because the low carb training will stimulate your fat oxidation. Um, and you have to play with it in training because it's really, it's, it's important because you want to have a low, uh, you want to have an efficient fat oxidation in a race where, well, there's low intensity. You want to save your, your, um, sugars for the high intensity work coming later in the race. Um, uh, so it's important to train that, but it's also important to train the high, the, yeah, with the high sugar intake, uh, training. Um, because you also want, want your body to, to be efficient in using the sugar. So you have to play with that during training, which is really important. And after the training, the, the recovery is, it's really important to take the, the right nutrition to, to have the recovery. Um, and then in the race, uh, yeah, of course it's, it's important to eat uh, a lot during the race. So our goal was kind of in every race have the 90 grams, um, per hour and what we did we used the kilojoules um, from the power meter to see how much energy a rider burned and then they had to keep track of what they eat in a race and then at the end of the race uh, you know how much um yeah the deficit the, the, the deficit, deficit. Is. what's it called the english deficit word? yeah uh, and then based on that we um we, we, we give them nutrition. We, the meals were based on that in Grand Tours, for example. Mm, yep. Uh, how often might you include uh, training with low carbohydrates in your sort of January, February training? How many times per week? Yeah, yeah. It depends on the, it depends on the rider and on the goals of the uh, rider. So where the rider should be, should, should improve in. Um, yeah, so it's hard to say, but once or twice a week, um, yeah, I think okay. that's, that's normal to do. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, the final topic, but, but sorry, go on. Ah, yeah. I wanted to say it's, it, the placing of this training is important because it has an extra, um, extra stress yeah, note. Yeah. Uh, stress. Yeah. Sorry. Stress on your body. So you should not do it before important races are yeah you have to plan it wisely yeah let's say that yep. and the final topic here uh is uh 
performance testing, so things like physiological testing in the lab or field tests, etc. How were those uh, included in the process? So when we when I can came into the team, we had a discussion about this, and because we had a small team with with a lower uh, budget in two thousand twelve, we decided to only use the the field test. Um, so we we kind of did a power curve test. So one day you do uh, um, the sprints and the one minute, and then another day you do the three minutes and twenty minutes. And the the the, the advantage of this is that it is really easy to do with a power meter, and you can do it every three, yeah, whenever you want, you can do it. Uh, of course, the disadvantage is that, that it is not so super controlled because the environment changes and, and, and thus the differences, yeah, you always have to be, be it's important how to interpret it. Um, so if I would make the same decision now with more budget, I would include uh, lab tests as well. Um, but the problem with the lab test is that you have to get the rider into the lab. So it will cost some days of training. So it's, it's, it's logistic. It's, it's more difficult, but yeah. the test is more, um, yeah, reliable. What do you think is the most important benefit of uh, lab testing? Is it to get sort of a strengths and weaknesses profile of the rider, or is it to get power targets for their training uh, b- better than from a field test or, uh, is it to know how much carbohydrate and fat they're uh, combusting, or what, what? What would you say are the most important factors that that makes lab testing useful? <laughs> I think the most useful is to to see the the strength and the weaknesses of the rider. Um, but that's mostly because you could can normally only do it once a year. Normally, teams only do it once a year. Um, if you could do a lab test like every four to six weeks, you can really use it to see the progress of a rider and see how he's he's developing. Then, then that would be really, um, yeah, really st- strong of a lab test. Yep. Plus, you could do the, the kind of the dose response study with it, but it's almost impossible to get pro riders every six weeks in a in a lab. Mm. Right. So one more question before the rapid fire questions. And uh, this one is specifically for the amateur cyclists, triathletes, endurance athletes listening to this podcast. If you could give three pieces of advice to amateur athletes to improve their performance or their training in in cycling or just in endurance sports in general, what would that be? I I think it will be, uh, yeah, the most things we already talked about. So I think think nutrition is really important in training and in racing, especially in racing. Then the goal, the goal of the training. Ah, you should have fun in training when you are amateur. But if you want to be like like uh, improve, then I think the goal of the training is really important. So if it like like I said, the intensity distribution. Don't do too much in the gray zone. Um. Yeah, the third third advice. Um, yeah, I think it can be really valuable to have a power meter because it's it's interesting and it's nice to to it's really easy to see your progress and what you're training and how yeah the, yeah so it's a really good way of monitoring your training. Yeah, 
Perfect. And let's move on to the rapid fire questions. So these are just quick one sentence answers. And the first one is, what's your favorite book, blog, or resource related to endurance sports? I think in this case, the, my, the, my research will be uh, the cyclists and the data they collect because, uh, yeah, with that, I can, I can do my research. So, um, yeah, I think, uh, and, and the riders are like, it's, it's pretty difficult to collect data in, in with professional athletes, but if you know them, then it's really nice because they all say yes. And, and, um, yeah, it's really useful for me uh, to use that data in, in my research. Yeah. And what's your favorite piece of gear or equipment? Yeah, then, then I have to say the power meter at this moment. Oh yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah, because it's, yeah, it's so easy to to collect every second what the rider is doing. So th there are no secrets anymore. Yep. And finally, what's a personal habit that's helped you achieve success? Yeah, I, I think you need to have you need to have luck, and you have, need to be at the right time at the right moment um but also i think you need to see the opportunities which are there so for example i worked one year for free at uh at team sunweb or yeah like when we were a small team in 2011 to show them what a sports scientist can do and um yeah so you have to work hard for that to to get in the position to be a sports scientist yeah and, and work with pro athletes um, but you also have to see that opportunity and talk yeah. to people and, and and feel like, ah, okay, here is an opening to do something. Yeah, perfect. That's, that's a great story and, and a great, uh, great lesson. Uh, finally, do you have any social media or websites or anything that you want to plug where the listeners can follow you or anything like that? So my Twitter account is the underscore Tain. Um a little bit strange, but the riders made it for me in 2012. So uh, it's a nice story attached to it. And we'll have it uh, linked in the show notes. And, so. Yeah, and all my research is on my research gate, so you can read everything uh, everything back. Uh, we did it. We didn't talk much about the Tom Dumoulin study, but I think that one is really nice, also for amateurs to to look into because you can really see what it takes to win a Grand Tour. Yeah. All right. Uh, thank you so much, Ten. It's been uh, really nice to to have you on and uh, share your insights into professional cycling and the research that you've done as well. So I uh, really appreciate it. Thank you, thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk about my research because it's it's always nice to 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 be able to talk about it. I hope that you enjoyed that interview. As always, you can find the show notes on scientifictriathlon.com where I'll link to uh, Teun's research and Twitter profile, his PhD thesis, and some of the key papers that we discussed in this interview as well. Stay tuned for Thursday's Q&A episode that we will have as usual, and then next Monday another interview, a guest to be decided at the time of this recording, but uh, rest assured that it will be something interesting. I always try to make these interviews interesting, of course, so uh, I'll do my best to keep that streak going. If you're looking for training plans or coaching services, go and check out scientifictriathlon.com. Uh, I really believe that uh, we have uh, among the best training plans and coaching services in the triathlon industry. So go and have a look and email me if you have further questions. 
Big thanks to our sponsors, Precision Hydration, that you can find on precisionhydration.com. Go and take their free online sweat test and get a personalized hydration strategy for training and racing and get 15% off your order with the promo code thattriathlonshow 15 And thank you to Roka that you can find on roka.com. Check out their wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles, and high-performance eyewear, and prescription glasses and sunglasses, and get 20% off your order with the promo code that you can find on roka.com forward slash TTS. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart, and keep loving triathlon.